It's a good blessing, isn't it, again, to be able to come together as we are this evening to reflect upon the various acts of worship and to do that in a way that not only encourages us, but also glorifies and magnifies the name of the God of heaven. This evening, I'd like to study with you about the ocean. <laughs> now, you might think that being where we live, that that seems like an unusual topic, and in many ways, perhaps it is. But given that it is included in the Word of God, it certainly would be proper to give thought to it. So tonight, could I invite you to think about the ocean and how that we can even learn lessons about obedience from a study and reflection of the ocean. Maybe you've been to the ocean. Maybe you've witnessed that which occurs as the waves and the various things take place there on the seashore. Well, tonight, why don't we give some thought to the Word of God as it relates to the ocean, and as we do that, to use in it a powerful motivation for the topic of obedience. This introductory slide is one that very briefly sets our mind in tune to those ideas, perhaps like this. We would all agree that the ocean is mighty. In fact, there is great power and great forcefulness connected to it. And yet, it absolutely obeys its Maker. And that obedience, you see, ought to be a powerful lesson for us. And we shall tonight develop some of that in the course of perhaps the most famous Old Testament record that relates to the ocean. And so this next slide. First, let's take just a moment and settle in our hearts some of these truths about the ocean and just to give us a viewpoint as to its majesty and size. I've listed there at the top just a few, I hope, impressive facts about it. One might surely be this one. As our astronomical friends have turned their telescopes and other measuring devices to various places in the heavens, and lead us to say they have seen many planet-like objects. In fact, many of them are actually called planets. And yet, none of them even close to what the surface of Earth looks like. You and I know that one thing that makes Earth so incredibly special has to do with the appearance of water. Well, our planet in particular is such that 71% of its surface is covered by water. As you give thought to the various oceans and the various bodies of water, and that degree, you see, of water turns out to be incredible and also essential for the overall thermodynamics of the planet. The distribution of heat, the distribution of the other features by way of the seasons. Well, needless to say, in terms of all of that, you might also make note of how much water there is in these oceans. Some 350 trillion million gallons of water. That's clearly a lot of water. And that amount of water is such that, given the properties of water, it again leads to an impressive distribution of some of the features of heat around our planet. Earth's ocean systems are majestic, they're complicated, they're intricate. But that intricacy takes us back to the scene of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Isn't it true? There's where we get our first introduction to the oceans. Day number 3 of God's creative activity, you and I recall that on that day, He gathered the waters together and the dry land appeared. Now that text of Genesis chapter 1, not only does it highlight that, but it also points out in that process what God would do two days later. Namely, that there we see the life that the oceans would bring about. Let the waters bring forth abundantly. 
the birds as well as ocean living creatures all came from the waters. In fact, you may notice I've actually recorded for you the ASV version, the rendering of one of those verses in Genesis chapter 1. And you might be impressed with the teeming character of life. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Now you and I know well that later in the Bible that some of those things are described as smaller ocean-dwelling creatures and some of them are very large. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at Leviathan, that large creature living in the waters, and yet a creature like that was one that was brought forth under the banner of day number five. As you and I close that slide, we are reminded on several occasions that the life in the seas and the characteristics of the seas, as great as they are, as impressive as they are, God made them. Exodus 20 verse 11 continues to say, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Now you may notice a part of that description emphasized the waters, the seas, and how that even they and that which relates to them was brought about by the creative activity of God. I know that there are those who, from a standpoint of scientific look, see in the ocean something that came about by accident, something that came about by happenstance, but such is nonsense of the highest order. It's too intricate and complex, and yet the properties which she has are far too needful for the planet to have arisen in a way beyond that of a designer. Later in Nehemiah 9, verse number 6, the, the man Nehemiah, as great a builder as he was, even he made reference to the fact that one more time, that the seas were brought about with all their character by God. Let's make just a few more observations about the ocean itself, and then we'll be prepared to develop some observations and lessons that can be of benefit to us. This slide reminds you of one additional thing. The Word of God on several occasions will point out the interesting feature of the, earth's obe the water's obedience to God. One of them was red. Brother Dennis read that text in Psalm 33. Would you notice again the wording of how that's presented to you and me, specifically in verse number 7. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. For He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. God gave the command, the waters obeyed. God gave the command, the waters, in fact, ordered themselves in a fashion whereby they submitted to His authority. It might well be with that observation. Our mind rushes to Psalm 104. You see, in that passage, we're reminded something, and maybe it's worthy of reflection. Do you recall in the days of the flood of the time of Noah, that the fountains of the great deep were opened up, and the windows of heaven as well. Have you ever wondered where all of that water went? That water that covered the entirety of this planet, the highest mountain was covered to a depth of 15 cubits. That's 22 and a half feet. But clearly all that water, as you and I, and I would now appreciate it, has gone somewhere. Where did it go? Psalm 104 appears to give us the answer. 
In the 104th Psalm, if I may just direct your attention to a couple of the verses, near the beginning of that chapter, these observations are made. Verse number 6, Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. Apparently a direct reflection to the times of Noah when the waters stood above the mountains. Now note the next verse. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys, unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. Did you notice the language? The inspired writer pointed out that they fled to the place which God prepared for them apparently. He then restructured the surface of our planet in such a way there were great channels and valleys and depths to which those waters could run. And that last verse pointed out, a bound has now been set so that never again shall they pass over it in the same way they did in the days of Noah. One more time, the obedience, if you please, of the ocean. Maybe one last observation taken from Jeremiah 5. If you be turning to that passage, it's only verse 22 that we need to consider. Listen to what is said about the oceans here and the nature of the waters that cover our planet. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord? Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree, that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. One more time, the sand is highlighted here as that boundary, that perpetual designation of decree, whereby the waters shall never again pass over it in a continuous fashion as they did in days gone by. Isn't it easy to see? The ocean, in many ways, is able to teach you and me about obedience. Isn't it true that when you and I visit the seashore, we have no issue standing there because we aren't afraid of that water suddenly jumping beyond the bounds which have been placed for it. Those waves, though they continually erode away at the, at the particulars of the, of, the, of the shore, you and I recognize well that that bound remains in place. It is with those things notified that I would ask us to make an application as we turn to the book of Jonah. I mentioned earlier about that well-known episode late in the Old Testament, of that consideration wherein the ocean played such a dramatic role. Why don't you and I think about the book of Jonah for just a moment? Four chapters, 48 verses. In many ways, it's a very brief book. And yet the lessons in it are genuinely timeless. In fact, what we're going to do tonight for just a few moments is reflect upon some major matters of each chapter, but do so with brevity. But I chose to begin that consideration by at least addressing one of the issues that sometimes is raised as it relates to that book. Was Jonah a real character? Many, I suppose, over the ages have wrestled with, do you mean to tell me that a man stayed alive in the belly of a great fish as that fish swam around in the ocean for three days? Some people might perhaps laugh at you. 
that you believe such a thing could have happened, that you would have confidence that truly a man could have lived this way. For there are many things, obviously, that you and I know about the pressure that one faces as you dive into the ocean. You and I know that anyone who dives deeply in the ocean has to have a special vessel in which they survive because the pressure is so great. And you really believe that a man was simply inside the interior of a great fish and he survived three days like this? Let me just invite you to quickly note a few things as you think about what we're saying in that light. I've asked you to note these things on the slide. First of all, how does the Bible refer to Jonah? The Bible refers to him as a literal person. He's not figurative. He is no make-believe character in any way. For after all, notice, we know who his father was, Amittai. The Bible directly tells us who his daddy was. It tells us where he lived, Gathhefer. It furthermore points out in 2 Kings 14, 25, that he was directly a man who, as a prophet of the Lord, declared things in the days of two different kings. One, Uzziah. The others, I point out to you, Jeroboam II. So historically, geographically, as well as personally, several things about him are noted. But that is it all. As you look near the bottom of that slide, he was given an express command by the God of heaven. God doesn't give express commands to make-believe creatures. He doesn't give express commands to those things that are figurative. He told Jonah, you go to Nineveh and preach. The preaching, I bid thee to preach. That command is very straightforward. We close that slide with this observation. The book of Jonah, of course, mentions several attributes of Jonah. He expressed pity in chapter 4. He expressed sacrifice in chapter 1. He made note of humility in chapter 2. You get the idea. These attributes are directly connected to him. There were times he was even chastised and rebuked. As I go to this next slide, though, the, by far the strongest consideration is this. The Son of God, Jesus, declared that Jonah existed. Now, that's enough, I think, for any of us. But when Jesus said that just like Jonah preached to Nineveh, and they repented, a greater than Jonah is here. And he was referring to himself. Jesus said they responded to the preaching of Jonah, being the people of Nineveh, and yet one now that is greater than Jonah is here. And the Lord referred to himself. Furthermore, he noted that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so too the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Thus, in two different lines of consideration, Jesus made note there was a man named Jonah, and he really did spend some time in the heart of the earth, or rather in the heart of that fish, and in the same way, the Son of Man, namely Jesus Himself, was to be three days and three nights, buried in the tomb before He rose again. I would invite you to consider in that light that the book of Jonah is a real account of what happened in the life of a real man named Jonah. Let's now revisit it in light of the ocean. What are some lessons that we can extract 
as we look carefully at the opening of this book. Chapter number 1, Jonah ran from God. And that was not a good idea. Let's develop it like this. God had given to Jonah a direct command in chapter 1, verse 2. To note carefully the way that's written. Arise, God said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God's wording, His orders, if you please, to Jonah were very explicit. You go to Nineveh and preach. Now you and I will appreciate that Nineveh was a very great city. In that very verse, we noted it was called a great city. Later on in chapter 4, verse 11, we're told the population was 120,000 people. In chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, we're given total that it took three days to journey around it. That was a large city. And yet God had an interest in these people. Even though they were not Israelites, God's concern for their well-being was such that He ordered one of His prophets to go there and preach. How did Jonah respond? Well, you and I know well what he did. In fact, on this next map, I thought we would at least summarize some of that which might be easily called Jonah's travel plan. God told him to go to Nineveh. If you'll notice on that map, Thankfully, in color, you can easily see where Nineveh was. Let me point out, here again is Jerusalem. Nineveh is over here. Now, rather than to proceed to Nineveh, on this first occasion, Jonah proceeded to Joppa, which is a seaport town located right here on the Mediterranean coast. And you may notice that Jonah boarded a ship, and he wasn't headed to Nineveh. In fact, Tarshish is way over here. It's about as far from Nineveh as you can imagine, at least in that day and time. Jonah was going to go as far from Nineveh as he could find a way to get. He went the exact opposite direction that God told him to go. Now, as we revisit that previous slide, let's talk more and think more about the characteristics of his running from God. You'll notice that beginning in verse number 4 of this chapter, you and I will recall that God sent out a few things in this book. He sent a great fish, but we'll get to that soon. But here in chapter 1, verse number 4, God sent something else. He sent a great wind. You, might, you and I might call it a storm. And so as Jonah was proceeding on that ship in the Mediterranean Sea, a storm arose this great wind that began to cause mariners great concern. Isn't it interesting that here were experienced and seasoned mariners, and yet the text says in verse number 5, the mariners were afraid. This storm was of sufficient magnitude that even the mariners became greatly concerned. Interestingly enough, you'll notice that they cried every man to his God. And they came and found Jonah asleep. They stirred him up and urged him at once to cry unto his God that this storm might be such that they could survive it. Things didn't get much better very quickly, however. And so they had to try and lighten the burden of the ship. And so they began to cast over the various things which in fact it was carrying. 
Now, they didn't cast over any of the people yet, but only the cargo that the boat was carrying. But still, they found that the matter was continuing in greatness and in urgency. And so they began to cast lots to find out who was the cause of this. Now, you and I learn from Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is of God. And so, don't you find it interesting? They cast lots and it fell on Jonah. So tell us, man, what are you doing here? How are you the cause of this? Have you ever imagined how awkward that must have been for Jonah to reply? I'm a prophet of the Lord, and he told me to go to Nineveh. Well, you must be a sorry one. He told you to go to Nineveh. Why are you headed here? Why are you trying to run from this God you serve? And so they soon cast Jonah overboard. As you and I close chapter number 1, we now arrive at this interesting observation. As Jonah has been cast overboard, this particular slide helps you and I see this. He wasn't able to run from God. He may have wanted to go to Tarshish at that time in his life. And he may have thought that he could avoid this order that God gave him to go to Nineveh. But God knew exactly where he was. And you notice at this point, that's a great lesson for you and me. We cannot run from God. And it's futile and wasteful to try. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15, 3. Psalm 139 reminds us that even there the psalmist was able to exclaim, On the darkest night, you know exactly where I am. Even if I take the wings of the morning and abide in places that are distant from here, you know exactly where that is. In fact, the psalmist was even able to say, In the pits of Sheol, Hades, even there you know where I am. All of that reminds us that today, wouldn't it be far wiser to simply honor the command that God has given than try to run from Him and to think that we might be successful? In the closing of that slide, that only brings us back to the continuing episode of Jonah. So he's now been cast overboard. In Jonah chapter 1, you recognize verse 17 closes that chapter with these interesting words. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah perhaps didn't stay very long in the water per se before this great fish took care of that matter. And now Jonah finds himself in the interior of a great fish for three days and three nights. What a journey that must have been. What a time of survival that must have been. And so on this next slide, a few additional comments now come to us from chapter number 2. Because so far we've learned that Jonah ran from God, but did you notice in chapter 2 he ran to God? There's a very different response and a very different reaction. You and I remember there was a great motivation for this. Could I read to you some of that which occurs to us in chapter 2? Beginning in verse number 2, Jonah prays to God, and here's what he says, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and He heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. 
For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet will I look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. Even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. What a record. Here was a man who even in a place like that prayed to the God of heaven and he even made note of the kinds of circumstances in which he was. Weeds wrapped around his head. That which would otherwise be in the interior of some great fish. Jonah experienced it. At this point, can you and I not note near the bottom of that slide, God heard that prayer. I hope you and I always have a confidence, perhaps exhibited much like that which Jonah expressed. He said, God heard me. He was assured and confident and overwhelmingly apprised of the fact that in that prayer God had heard him because notice what happened. Verse number 10, The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. God heard and answered that prayer in quickness. Jonah had prayed for relief. He had prayed for restoration and salvation. He had prayed, and God had answered. Today, when you and I pray, may we have the thundering confidence that God will hear the prayers of His children 1 Peter 3.12 says that God's ear is directed to the cries of His children. Those that are His children, you and I, the godly, are those who can bend the ear of God. As you and I pray to Him, doesn't James 5.16 still say it like this? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. As Jonah prayed to the Lord, we close that slide like this. The beautiful set of what I've called invitations, reminding us of how God desires that we communicate with Him, that He desires that we be those who are quick to turn to Him. Chapter 1, Jonah ran from God. Chapter 2, he ran to God. What about chapter 3? He runs with God. At this point, I hope you're impressed with what takes place early in chapter number 3. So here now is a man who has just spent some time in the belly of a great fish and has been vomited back out on dry land. And to him, God says this, verse th chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. God's Word hadn't changed. The same message He had been given the first time, He was now given again. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Bid the preaching which I bid thee to preach. I suppose it could be argued the single greatest Old Testament verse on preaching is Jonah 3, verse 2. Any man that would climb into a pulpit, you preach what God bids you to preach. You don't preach what common culture would say. You don't preach what the people would want to hear, but you preach the preaching that God bids you to preach. That's what Jonah was now earnestly urged to do on this second occasion. 
every one of us know how, how he reacted the second time. And on that slide, may I point out to you verse number 3. After hearing this, he didn't try to run to Tarshish a second time. I'm sure there was a great memory of what happened when he tried it the first time. Verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. This time he simply did what God commanded, just like the ocean does what God commands. That lesson on obedience certainly isn't missed on you and me. This time Jonah obeyed, and didn't it work out far better? There was no time in the belly of a great fish this time. In fact, there was nothing like that. I've summarized some of the things of chapter 3 for your consideration. But verse number 4 says, Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm sure there was at first some consideration on Jonah's part. How will these people react to a message which God has given me? Forty days, and if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. And yet the people heard, the king heard, from the greatest to the least, this description now appears. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least. Here was a city, and you and I would call them heathens. They weren't Israelites. They'd never been given the law of Moses. And yet the text says they believed God. They believed Jonah. They believed what he taught. So much so that they repented in sackcloth and ashes from the greatest all the way to the least. The level of appreciation in the next verse is even greater. For a word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and noble, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Can you picture it? They even put sackcloth on animals. So great was their repentance. One more time, Nineveh had an ear of response to God, didn't they? They obeyed, and may I ask, isn't it impressive that they were spared? God didn't destroy Nineveh in 40 days, as He initially threatened because they repented. May I say, what a great lesson for us. When you and I choose to behave as we ought not, if we will repent... Oh, what blessings we can then receive. What great reward from the God of heaven shall then be ours because we've become His child again and a faithful one at that. Isn't it sweet? Isn't it amazing to reflect upon this repentance of Nineveh? Jonah runs with God this time, and oh, how nice it was. All that's left is chapter 4. What's the great lesson out of that chapter? He had run from God in chapter 1. He ran to God in chapter 2. He ran with God in chapter 3. What about chapter 4? Could it not be entitled, He Runs Before God? 
things take a bit of a turn, not so much for the good as we arrive at chapter 4. In fact, the chapter has only 11 verses. Let me begin it by inviting your attention to this. We are finally told in chapter number 4, have you ever wondered, why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh the first time? Why did he try to go to Tarshish instead? Finally, in chapter 4, we learn the answer. You and I know the prophets were some of the noblest souls that ever lived. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and men like Hosea and Habakkuk and all the others. Those men were fervent, committed, even when the people before whom they preached were so opposed to them. But Jonah was the bad apple in the bunch. When God told him to go, he didn't. At first. Finally, in chapter 4, we learn why. Jonah was a much better prophet, or sorry, a much better patriot than he was a prophet. He loved his country. And in that way, he didn't like his political enemies. And Nineveh was the political enemy of Israel. Jonah didn't want them forgiven, he didn't want them saved. He hated them. He did not want God to shower them with forgiveness and blessings because they opposed Israel. And He wanted them punished. He wanted them, in fact, done with as God had originally promised. So much so in chapter number 4, now God has to rebuke Jonah. He ran before God. And you remember the scene. We encounter one more thing that God prepared. Did you notice in verse number 4? Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. You see, in verses 2 and following of that chapter, we'd already learned that Jonah was fervent for his country. May I again say, a better patriot than he was a prophet. Because now, Jonah says, I knew you'd forgive them if they repented. Can you imagine addressing God that way? I knew you'd forgive them if they'd repent. And he did, because they did. Jonah didn't like it. He didn't want them forgiven. And so God prepares a gourd tree. And Jonah enjoyed, in that blistering heat of the Middle East, he enjoyed being able to sit under that gourd tree. And there on that hill, he would watch Nineveh. I'm sure hopeful that they'd be destroyed. But that was not to be. Not then, at least. Because God prepared one final thing in this book. After Jonah enjoyed the gourd tree, did you notice in verse 7 what else God prepared? He prepared a worm... When the morning arose the next day, and it smoked the gourd that it withered. God had prepared the tree, but now He prepared a worm to destroy the tree. And Jonah was more bothered by not having a shade than he did from the souls of 120,000 people. He cared more about the gourd tree than he did those people. That's a pretty bad reflection on Jonah the man, isn't it? But what does it say about you and me? You notice that this book, as it closes, Jonah ran before God. He said, I knew you'd forgive them if they'd repent. And again, God did forgive them because they did repent. 
And with all of that, the book now closes. May I read verses 9 through 11 of chapter 4? God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? God asked that rather pertinent question of Jonah. You care more about that gourd tree than you do about these people. And doesn't that place a challenging question before you and me? Do we care more about something that we own than we do the souls of people? Be it our family, our children, our neighbors, friends, acquaintances, or others? If we do, we might be a little bit like Jonah. God rebuked him in a rather dramatic way. And God prepared all of these things in that. As he ran before God, why don't we close our lesson and ask ourselves some of those things we've seen develop through the book. The ocean teaches obedience because the ocean waters obey precisely and exactly those things that God has put in place for them. Jonah at first didn't obey, but then he did. And it worked out so much better. And sadly, his own personal consideration wasn't as it should have been in chapter 4. But it would seem there's a gigantic lesson of obedience in the book of Jonah. Because when he obeyed, how much better for him it was. What about you and me tonight? Are we obedient to the Lord? Do we, like the ocean, obey the commands that God has given to us? If so, I know that we too are apprised of the blessing that's ours. On the other hand, if we, like Jonah, would disobey, it is not going to work out well. It never does. That leads me to close the lesson like this. The book of Jonah not only teaches the matters of obedience this way, but it does so in the character of a man named Jonah, a real living person on this planet. He ran from God at first, ran to God next, He ran with God for a while, but he ran before God in chapter 4. And that too led to God's rebuking him and chastising him in a way I'm sure that all of us can easily appreciate. In closing this lesson tonight, let's offer the Lord's invitation. The whole theme has surrounded obedience, and God would want you and I to be obedient today. He allows us to make our own choices He allows us to make the decisions that would be our own. But oh, how He knows it is not going to work out well if we choose to disobey. It'll be bad for us here. It'll be worse for us after after death. May we in wisdom obey the first time, unlike Jonah. May we follow the Lord's teaching the first time. If there's anyone in this assembly tonight who has reached a point in life wherein you maybe at one time were a faithful follower of the Lord, but as of tonight your obedience has slipped, you have begun to have attitudes or maybe habits which are not good. One thing to be said is it's already a great step in the right direction when you recognize that's not right. And when you recognize it's not good, now take the next step and let the Lord help you do something about it. Tonight, if we could assist you in that way, it would be our privilege and honor. 
The Lord's invitation is extended that way. If you need to make confession of, of sins known in a public way, we'd be honored to make observation of that. And in so doing, we could pray to God on your behalf. If you would wish to become a Christian, though, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His matchless name as the Messiah, and be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. Tonight, we'd be honored to assist in that way as well. If we could help in any way, let obedience be the rule of the moment as together we stand and as we sing.